Question 4 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, Initial Questions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Jim Ruddy. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, Initial Questions by St. Thomas Aquinas Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province Question 4. The Perfection of God Having considered the divine simplicity, we treat next of God's perfection. Now because everything in so far as it is perfect is called good, we shall speak first of the divine perfection, secondly of the divine goodness. Concerning the first there are three points of inquiry, whether God is perfect, whether God is perfect universally as having in himself the perfections of all things, and whether creatures can be said to be like God. First article, whether God is perfect. Objection 1. It seems that perfection does not belong to God, for we say a thing is perfect if it is completely made, but it does not befit God to be made, therefore he is not perfect. Objection 2. Further, God is the first beginning of things, but the beginnings of things seem to be imperfect, as seed is the beginning of animal and vegetable life. Therefore, God is imperfect. Objection 3. Further, as shown above, God's essence is existence. But existence seems most imperfect, since it is most universal and receptive of all modification. Therefore, God is imperfect. On the contrary, it is written, Be you perfect as also your heavenly Father is perfect. I answer that, as the philosopher relates, some ancient philosophers, namely the Pythagoreans and Lucipus, did not predicate best and most perfect of the first principle. The reason was that the ancient philosophers considered only a material principle. And a material principle is most imperfect. For since matter as such is merely potential, the first material principle must be simply potential, and thus most imperfect. Now God is the first principle, not material, but in the order of efficient cause, which must be most perfect. For just as matter as such is merely potential, an agent as such is in the state of actuality. Hence the first active principle must needs be most actual, and therefore most perfect. For a thing is perfect in proportion to its state of actuality, because we call that perfect which lacks nothing of the mode of its perfection. Reply to objection 1. As Gregory says, though our lips can only stammer, yet we chant the high things of God. For that which is not made is improperly called perfect. Nevertheless, because created things are then called perfect when from potentiality they are brought into actuality, this word perfect signifies whatever is not wanting in actuality, whether this be by way of per perfection or not. Reply to objection 2. The material principle which with us is found to be imperfect cannot be absolutely primal, but must be preceded by something perfect. For seed, though it is, be the principle of animal life, reproduced through seed, has previous to it the animal or plant from which it came. Because previous to that which is potential must be that which is actual, since a potential being can only be reduced into act by some being already actual. 
Reply to Objection 3. Existence is the most perfect of all things, for it is compared to all things as that by which they are made actual. For nothing has actuality so except so far as it exists. Hence existence is that which actuates all things, even their forms. Therefore it is not compared to other things as the receiver is to the received, but rather as the received to the receiver. Whence therefore I speak of the existence of man or horse or anything else, existence is considered a formal principle and as something received and not as that which exists. Second article, whether the perfections of all things are in God. Objection 1. It seems that the perfections of all things are not in God, for God is simple, as shown above, whereas the perfections of all things are many and diverse. Therefore, the perfections of all things are not in God. Objection 2. Further, opposites cannot coexist. Now the perfections of things are opposed to each other, for each thing is perfected by its specific difference. But the differences by which genera are divided and species constituted are opposed to each other. Therefore, because opposites cannot coexist in the same subject, it seems that the perfections of all things are not in God. Objection 3. Further, a living thing is more perfect than what merely exists, and an intelligent thing than what merely lives. Therefore, life is more perfect than existence, and knowledge than life. But the essence of God is existence itself, therefore he has not the perfections of life and knowledge and other similar perfections. On the contrary, Dionysius says that God in his one existence prepossesses all things. I answer that all created perfections are in God. Hence he is spoken of as universally perfect, because he lacks not, says the commentator, any excellence which may be found in any genus. This may be seen from two considerations. First, because whatever perfection exists in an effect must be found in the effective cause, either in the same formality, if it is a univocal agent, as when man reproduces man, or in a more eminent degree, if it is an equivocal agent, thus in the sun is the likeness of whatever is generated by the sun's power. Now it is plain that the effect pre-exists virtually in the efficient cause, and although to pre-exist in the potentiality of a material cause is to pre-exist in a more imperfect way, since matter as such is imperfect, and an agent as such is perfect, Still, to pre-exist virtually in the efficient cause is to pre-exist not in a more imperfect, but in a more perfect way. Since therefore God is the first effective cause of things, the perfections of all things must pre-exist in God in a more eminent way. Dionysius implies the same line of argument by saying of God, it is not that he is this and not that, but that he is all as the cause of all. Secondly, from what has been already proved, God is existence itself, of itself subsistent. Consequently, he must contain within himself the whole perfection of being. For it is clear that if some hot thing has not the whole perfection of heat, this is because heat is not participated in its full perfection. But if this heat were self-subsisting, nothing of the virtue of heat would be wanting to it. Since therefore God is subsisting being itself, nothing of the perfection of being can be wanting to him. Now all created perfections are included in the perfection of being, for things are perfect precisely so far as they have 
being after some fashion. It follows, therefore, that the perfection of no one thing is wanting to God. This line of argument, too, is implied by Dionysius when he says that God exists not in any single mode, but embraces all being within himself absolutely, without limitation, uniformly. And afterwards he adds that he is the very existence to subsisting things. Reply to Objection 1. Even as the sun, as Dionysius remarks, while remaining one and shining uniformly, contains within itself first and uniformly the substances of sensible things and many and diverse qualities, a fortiare should all things in a kind of natural unity pre-exist in the cause of all things. And thus things diverse and in themselves opposed to each other pre-exist in God as one without injury to his simplicity. This suffices for the reply to the second objection. Reply to objection 3. The same Dionysius says that although existence is more perfect than life and life than wisdom, if they are considered as distinguished in idea, nevertheless a living thing is more perfect than what merely exists, because living things also exist, and intelligent things both exist and live. Although therefore existence does not include life and wisdom, because that which participates in existence need not participate in every mode of existence, nevertheless God's existence includes in itself life and wisdom, because nothing of the perfection of being can be wanting to him who is subsisting being itself. Third article, whether any creature can be like God. Objection 1. It seems that no creature can be like God, for it is written, There is none among the gods like unto thee, O Lord. But of all creatures the most excellent are those which are called by participation gods. Therefore still less can other creatures be said to be like God. Objection 2. Further, likeness implies comparison, but there can be no comparison between things in a different genus. Therefore neither can there be any likeness. Thus we do not say that sweetness is like whiteness, but no creature is in the same genus as God, since God is no genus, as shown above. Therefore no creature is like God. Objection 3. Further, we speak of those things as like which agree in form, but nothing can agree with God in form, for save in God alone, essence and existence differ. Therefore no creature can be like to God. Objection 4. Further, among things there is a mutual likeness, for like is like to like. If therefore any creature is like God, God will be like some creature, which is against what is said by Isaiah, To whom have you likened God? On the contrary, it is written, Let us make man to our image and likeness. And when he shall appear, we shall be like to him. I answer that since likeness is based upon agreement or communication in form, it varies according to the many modes of communication in form. Some things are said to be like which communicate in the same form according to the same formality and according to the same mode, and these are said to be not merely like but equal in their likeness, as two things equally white are said to be alike in whiteness, mm -hmm. and this is the most perfect likeness. In another way we speak of things as alike which communicate in form according to the same formality, though not according to the same measure, but according to more or less, as something less white is said to be like another thing more white, and this is imperfect likeness. In a third way some things are said to be like which communicate in the same form, but not according to the same formality, as we see in non-univocal agents, 
For since every agent reproduces itself so far as it is an agent, and everything acts according to the manner of its form, the effect must in some way resemble the form of the agent. If therefore the agent is contained in the same species as its effect, there will be a likeness in form between that which makes and that which is made, according to the same formality of the species, as man reproduces man. If, however, the agent and its effect are not contained in the same species, there will be a likeness, but not according to the formality of the same species. As things generated by the sun's heat may be in some sort spoken of as like the sun, not as though they received the form of the sun in its specific likeness, but in its generic likeness. Therefore, if there is an agent not contained in any genus, its effect will still more distantly reproduce the form of the agent, not, that is, so as to participate in the likeness of the agent's form according to the same specific or generic formality, but only according to some sort of analogy, as existence is common to all. In this way, all created things, so far as they are beings, are like God as the first and universal principle of all being. Reply to Objection 1. As Dionysius says, when Holy Writ declares that nothing is like God, it does not mean to deny all likeness to Him. For the same things can be like and unlike to God. Like according as they imitate Him, as far as He who is not perfectly imitable can be imitated, unlike according as they fall short of their cause. Not merely in intensity and remission, as that which is less white falls short of that which is more white, but because they are not in agreement specifically or generically. Reply to Objection 2. God is not related to creatures as though belonging to a different genus, but as transcending every genus, and as the principle of all genera. Reply to Objection 3. Likeness of creatures to God is not affirmed on account of agreement in form according to the formality of the same genus or species, but solely according to analogy, inasmuch as God is essential being, whereas other things are merely beings by participation. Reply to Objection 4. Although it may be admitted that creatures are in some sort like God, it must nowise be admitted that God is like creatures, because, as Dionysius says, a mutual likeness may be found between things of the same order, but not between a cause and that which is caused. For we say that a statue is like a man, but not conversely. So also a creature can be spoken of as in some sort like God, but not that God is like a creature. The end of question four. Question five of Summa Theologica Pars Prima Initial Questions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Jim Ruddy. Summa Theologica Pars Prima Initial Questions by St. Thomas Aquinas Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province Question 5 Of Goodness in General We next consider goodness. First, goodness in general. Secondly, the goodness of God. Under the first head there are six points of inquiry, whether goodness and being are the same really, Granted that they differ only in idea, which is prior in thought? 
granted that being is prior whether every being is good to what cause should goodness be reduced whether goodness consists in mode species and order and whether goodness is divided into the virtuous the useful and the pleasant first article whether goodness differs really from being objection one it seems that goodness differs really from being for boethius says i perceive that in nature the fact that things are good is one thing that they are is another therefore goodness and being really differ objection two further nothing can be its own form but that is called good which has the form of being according to the commentary on decausis therefore goodness differs really from being objection three further goodness can be more or less but being cannot be more or less therefore goodness differs really from being on the contrary augustine says that inasmuch as we exist we are good i answer that goodness and being are really the same and differ only in idea which is clear from the following argument the essence of goodness consists in this that it is in some way desirable hence the philosopher says goodness is what all desire now it is clear that a thing is desirable only in so far as it is perfect for all desire their own perfection but everything is perfect so far as it is actual therefore it is clear that a thing is perfect so far as it exists for it is existence that makes all things actual as is clear from the foregoing hence it is clear that goodness and being are the same really but goodness presents the aspect of desirableness which being does not present reply to objection one although goodness and being are the same really nevertheless since they differ in thought they are not predicated of a thing absolutely in the same way since being properly signifies that something actually is and actuality properly correlates to potentiality a thing is in consequence said simply to have being according as it is primarily distinguished from that which is only in potentiality and this is precisely each thing's substantial being hence by its substantial being everything is said to have being simply but by any further actuality it is said to have being relatively thus to be white implies relative being for to be white does not take a thing out of simple potential being because only a thing that actually has being can receive this mode of being but goodness signifies perfection which is desirable and consequently of ultimate perfection hence that which has ultimate perfection is said to be simply good but that which has not the ultimate perfection it ought to have although in so far as it is at all actual it has some perfection is not said to be perfect simply nor good simply but only relatively in this way therefore viewed in its primal that is substantial being a thing is said to be simply and to be good relatively that is in so far as it has being but viewed in its complete actuality a thing is said to be relatively and to be good simply hence the saying of boethius i perceive that in nature the fact that things are good is one thing that they are is another is to be referred to a thing's goodness simply and having being simply 
because regarded in its primal actuality a thing simply exists and regarded in its complete actuality it is good simply in such sort that even in its primal actuality it is in some sort good and even in its complete actuality it in some sort has being reply to objection to goodness is a form so far as absolute goodness signifies complete actuality reply to objection three again goodness is spoken of as more or less according to a thing's superadded actuality for example as to knowledge or virtue second article whether goodness is prior in idea to being objection one it seems that goodness is prior in idea to being for names are arranged according to the arrangement of the things signified by the names but dionysius assigned the first place among the other names of god to his goodness rather than to his being therefore in idea goodness is prior to being objection to further that which is the more extensive is prior in idea but goodness is more extensive than being because as dionysius notes goodness extends to things both existing and non-existing whereas existence extends to existing things alone therefore goodness is in idea prior to being objection three further what is the more universal is prior in idea but goodness seems to be more universal than being since goodness has the aspect of desirable whereas to some non-existence is desirable for it is said of judas it were better for him if that man had not been born therefore in idea goodness is prior to being objection for further not only is existence desirable but life knowledge and many other things besides thus it seems that existence is a particular appetible and goodness a universal appetible therefore absolutely goodness is prior in idea to being on the contrary it is said by aristotle that the first of created things is being i answer that in idea being is prior to goodness for the meaning signified by the name of a thing is that which the mind conceives of the thing and intends by the word that stands for it therefore that is prior in idea which is first conceived by the intellect now the first thing conceived by the intellect is being because everything is knowable only inasmuch as it is in actuality hence being is the proper object of the intellect and is primarily intelligible as sound is that which is primarily audible therefore in idea being is prior to goodness reply to objection one dionysius discusses the divine names as implying some causal relation in god for we name god as he says from creatures as a cause from its effects but goodness since it has the aspect of desirable implies the idea of a final cause the causality of which is first among causes since an agent does not act except for some end and by an agent matter is moved to its form hence the end is called the cause of causes thus goodness as a cause is prior to being as is the end to the form therefore among the names signifying the divine causality goodness precedes being again according to the platonists who 
through not distinguishing primary matter from privation, said that matter was non-being, goodness is more extensively participated than being, for primary matter participates in goodness as tending to it, for all seek their like. But it does not participate in being, since it is presumed to be non-being. Therefore Dionysius says that goodness extends to non-existence. Reply to objection two. The same solution is applied to this objection. Or it may be said that goodness extends to existing and non-existing things, not so far as it can be predicated of them, but so far as it can cause them, if indeed by non-existence we understand not simply those things which do not exist, but those which are potential and not actual. For goodness has the aspect of the end, in which not only actual things find their completion, but also towards which tend even those things which are not actual, but merely potential. Now being implies the habitude of a formal cause only, either inherent or exemplar, and its causality does not extend save to those things which are actual. Reply to Objection 3. Non-being is desirable not of itself, but only relatively, that is, inasmuch as the removal of an evil, which can only be removed by non-being, is desirable. Now the removal of an evil cannot be desirable except so far as this evil deprives a thing of some being. Therefore being is desirable of itself, and non-being only relatively, inasmuch as one seeks some mode of being of which one cannot bear to be deprived. Thus even non-being can be spoken of as relatively good. Reply to objection for life, wisdom, and the like are desirable only so far as they are actual. Hence in each one of them some sort of being is desired, and thus nothing can be desired except being, and consequently nothing is good except being. Third article, whether every being is good. Objection one. It seems that not every being is good, for goodness is something superadded to being, as is clear from Article 1. But whatever is added to being limits it, as substance, quantity, quality, etc. Therefore goodness limits being, therefore not every being is good. Objection 2. Further, no evil is good. Woe to you that call evil good and good evil. But some things are called evil, therefore not every being is good. Objection 3. Further, goodness implies desirability. Now primary matter does not imply desirability, but rather that which desires. Therefore primary matter does not contain the formality of goodness. Therefore not every being is good. Objection 4. Further, the philosopher notes, In mathematics, goodness does not exist. But mathematics are entities, otherwise there would be no science of mathematics. Therefore not every being is good. On the contrary, every being that is not God is God's creature. Now every creature of God is good, and God is the greatest good. Therefore every being is good. I answer that every being as being is good. For all being as being has actuality and is in some way perfect, since every act implies some sort of perfection, and perfection implies desirability and goodness, as is clear from Article 1. 
Hence it follows that every being as such is good. Reply to Objection 1. Substance, quantity, quality, and everything included in them limit being by applying it to some essence or nature. Now in this sense, goodness does not add anything to being beyond the aspect of desirability and perfection, which is also proper to being, whatever kind of nature it may be. Hence goodness does not limit being. Reply to Objection 2. No being can be spoken of as evil, formally as being, but only so far as it lacks being. Thus a man is said to be evil because he lacks some virtue, and an eye is said to be evil because it lacks the power to see well. Reply to Objection 3. As primary matter has only potential being, so it is only potentially good. Although, according to the Platonists, primary matter may be said to be a non-being on account of the privation attaching to it, nevertheless it does participate to a certain extent in goodness, namely by its relation to or aptitude for goodness. Consequently, to be desirable is not its property, but to desire. Reply to Objection 4. Mathematical entities do not subsist as realities, because they would be in some sort good if they subsisted. But they have only logical existence, inasmuch as they are abstracted from motion and matter. Thus they cannot have the aspect of an end, which itself has the aspect of moving another. Nor is it repugnant that there should be in some logical entity neither goodness nor form of goodness, since the idea of being is prior to the idea of goodness, as was said in the preceding article. Fourth article, whether goodness has the aspect of a final cause. Objection 1. It seems that goodness has not the aspect of a final cause, but rather of the other causes. For, as Dionysius says, goodness is praised as beauty, but beauty has the aspect of a formal cause. Therefore, goodness has the aspect of a formal cause. Objection 2. Further, goodness is self-diffusive, for Dionysius says that goodness is that whereby all things subsist and are. But to be self-giving implies the aspect of an efficient cause. Therefore, goodness has the aspect of an efficient cause. Objection 3. Further, Augustine says that we exist because God is good. But we owe our existence to God as the efficient cause. Therefore, goodness implies the aspect of an efficient cause. On the contrary, the philosopher says that that is to be considered as the end and the good of other things for the sake of which something is. Therefore, goodness has the aspect of a final cause. I answer that since goodness is that which all things desire, and since this has the aspect of an end, it is clear that goodness implies the aspect of an end. Nevertheless, the idea of goodness presupposes the idea of an efficient cause and also of a formal cause. For we see that what is first in causing is last in the thing caused. Fire, for example, heats first of all before it reproduces the form of fire, though the heat in the fire follows from its substantial form. Now in causing, goodness and the end come first, both of which move the agent to act. Secondly, the action of the agent moving to the form, 
Thirdly comes the form. Hence, in that which is caused, the converse ought to take place, so that there should be a first, the form whereby it is a being. Secondly, we consider in it its effective power whereby it is perfect in being. For a thing is perfect when it can reproduce its like, as the philosopher says. Thirdly, there follows the formality of goodness, which is the basic principle of its perfection. Reply to Objection 1. Beauty and goodness in a thing are identical fundamentally, for they are based upon the same thing, namely the form, and consequently goodness is praised as beauty. But they differ logically, for goodness properly relates to the appetite, goodness being what all things desire, and therefore it has the aspect of an end, the appetite being a kind of movement towards a thing. On the other hand, beauty relates to the cognitive faculty. For beautiful things are those which please when seen. Hence beauty consists in due proportion. For the senses delight in things duly proportioned, as in what is after their own kind. Because every sense is a sort of reason, just as is every cognitive faculty. Now since knowledge is by assimilation, and similarly relates to form, beauty properly belongs to the nature of a formal cause. Reply to Objection 2. Goodness is described as self-diffusive in the sense that an end is said to move. Reply to Objection 3. He who has a will is said to be good so far as he has a good will, because it is by our will that we employ whatever powers we may have. Hence a man is said to be good not by his good understanding, but by his good will. Now the will relates to the end as to its proper object. Thus the saying, we exist because God is good, has reference to the final cause. Fifth article, whether the essence of goodness consists in mode, species, and order. Objection 1. It seems that the essence of goodness does not consist in mode, species, and order. For goodness and being differ logically, but mode, species, and order seem to belong to the nature of being. For it is written, Thou hast ordered all things in measure and number and weight. And to those three can be reduced species, mode, and order, as Augustine says. Measure fixes the mode of everything. Number gives it its species, and weight gives it rest and stability. Therefore the essence of goodness does not consist in mode, species, and order. Objection 2. Further, mode, species, and order are themselves good. Therefore, if the essence of goodness consists in mode, species, and order, then every mode must have its own mode, species, and order. The same would be the case with species and order in endless succession. Objection 3. Further, evil is the privation of mode, species, and order. But evil is not the total absence of goodness. Therefore, the essence of goodness does not consist in mode, species, and order. Objection 4. Further, that wherein consists the essence of goodness cannot be spoken of as evil. Yet we can speak of an evil mode, species, and order. Therefore, the essence of goodness does not consist in mode, species, and order. Objection 5. Further, mode, species, and order are caused by weight, number, and measure, as appears from the quotation from Augustine. 
but not every good thing has weight number and measure for ambrose says it is of the nature of light not to have been created in number weight and measure therefore the essence of goodness does not consist in mode species and order on the contrary augustine says these three mode species and order as common good things are in everything god has made thus where these three abound the things are very good where they are less the things are less good where they do not exist at all there can be nothing good but this would not be unless the essence of goodness consisted in them therefore the essence of goodness consists in mode species and order i answer that everything is said to be good so far as it is perfect for in that way only is it desirable now a thing is said to be perfect if it lacks nothing according to the mode of its perfection but since everything is what it is by its form and since the form presupposes certain things and from the form certain things necessarily follow in order for a thing to be perfect and good it must have a form together with all that precedes and follows upon that form now the form presupposes determination or commensuration of its principles whether material or efficient and this is signified by the mode hence it is said that the measure marks the mode but the form itself is signified by the species for everything is placed in its species by its form hence the number is said to give the species for definitions signifying species are like numbers according to the philosopher for as a unit added to or taken from a number changes its species so a difference added to or taken from a definition changes its species further upon the form follows an inclination to the end or to an action or something of the sort for everything in so far as it is in act acts and tends towards that which is in accordance with its form and this belongs to weight and order hence the essence of goodness so far as it consists in perfection consists also in mode species and order reply to objection one these three only follow upon being so far as it is perfect and according to this perfection it is good reply to objection two mode species and order are said to be good and to be beings not as though they themselves were subsistences but because it is through them that other things are both beings and good hence they have no need of other things whereby they are good for they are spoken of as good not as though formally constituted so by something else but as formally constituting others good thus whiteness is not said to be a being as though it were by anything else because by it something else has accidental being as an object that is white reply to objection three every being is due to some form hence according to every being of a thing is its mode species and order thus a man has a mode species and order as he is white virtuous learned and so on according to everything predicated of him but evil deprives the thing of some sort of being as blindness deprives us of that being which is sight yet it does not destroy every mode species and order but only such as follow upon the being of sight reply to objection four augustine says every mode as mode is good 
and the same can be said of species and order. But an evil mode, species and order, are called so as being less than they ought to be, or as not belonging to that which they ought to belong. Therefore they are called evil because they are out of place and incongruous. Reply to Objection 5. The nature of light is spoken of as being without number, weight, and measure, not absolutely, but in comparison with corporeal things, because the power of light extends to all corporeal things, inasmuch as it is an active quality of the first body that causes things, namely the heavens. Sixth article, whether goodness is rightly divided into the virtuous, the useful, and the pleasant. Objection 1. It seems that goodness is not rightly divided into the virtuous, the useful, and the pleasant, for goodness is divided by the ten predicaments, as the philosopher says. But the virtuous, the useful, and the pleasant can be found only under one predicament. Therefore, goodness is not rightly divided by them. Objection 2. Further, every division is made by opposites. But these three do not seem to be opposites, for the virtuous is pleasing, and no wickedness is useful. Whereas this ought to be the case if the division were made by opposites, for then the virtuous and the useful would be opposed. And Tully speaks of this, therefore this division is incorrect. Objection 3. Further, where one thing is on account of another, there is only one thing. But the useful is not goodness, except so far as it is pleasing and virtuous. Therefore the useful ought not to divide it against the pleasant and the virtuous. On the contrary, Ambrose makes use of this division of goodness. I answer that this division properly concerns human goodness. But if we consider the nature of goodness from a higher and more universal point of view, we shall find that this division properly concerns goodness as such. For everything is good so far as it is desirable and is a term of the movement of the appetite, the term of whose movement can be seen from a consideration of the movement of a natural body. Now, the movement of a natural body is terminated by the end absolutely and relatively by the means through which it comes to the end, where the movement ceases. So a thing is called a term of movement so far as it terminates any part of that movement. Now the ultimate term of movement can be taken in two ways, either as the thing itself towards which it tends, for example a place or form, or a state of rest in that thing. Thus in the movement of the appetite, the thing desired that terminates the movement of the appetite relatively as a means by which something tends towards another is called the useful but that sought after as the last thing, absolutely terminating the movement of the appetite, as a thing towards which for its own sake the appetite tends, is called the virtuous. For the virtuous is that which is desired for its own sake. But that which terminates the movement of the appetite in the form of rest in the thing desired is called the pleasant. Reply to Objection 1. Goodness, so far as it is identical with being, is divided by the ten predicaments, but this division belongs to it according to its proper formality. Reply to Objection 2. This division is not by opposite things, but by opposite aspects. 
now those things are called pleasing which have no other formality under which they are desirable except the pleasant being sometimes hurtful and contrary to virtue whereas the useful applies to such as have nothing desirable in themselves but are desired only as helpful to something further as the taking of bitter medicine while the virtuous is predicated of such as are desirable in themselves reply to objection three goodness is not divided into these three as something univocal to be predicated equally of them all but as something analogical to be predicated of them according to priority and posteriority hence it is predicated chiefly of the virtuous then of the pleasant and lastly of the useful the end of question five Question 6 of Summa Theologica Pars Prima Initial Questions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Jim Ruddy. Summa Theologica Pars Prima Initial Questions by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 6. The Goodness of God. We next consider the goodness of God, under which head there are four points of inquiry, whether goodness belongs to God, whether God is the supreme good, whether He alone is essentially good, and whether all things are good by the divine goodness. First article, whether God is good. Objection 1. It seems that to be good does not belong to God. For goodness consists in mode, species, and order. But these do not seem to belong to God, since God is immense and is not ordered to anything else. Therefore, to be good does not belong to God. Objection 2. Further, the good is what all things desire, but all things do not desire God, because all things do not know Him, and nothing is desired unless it is known. Therefore, to be good does not belong to God. On the contrary, it is written, The Lord is good to them that hope in him, to the soul that seeketh him. I answer that to be good belongs preeminently to God. For a thing is good according to its desirableness. Now everything seeks after its own perfection. And the perfection and form of an effect consists in a certain likeness to the agent, since every agent makes its like and hence the agent itself is desirable and has the nature of good. For the very thing which is desirable in it is the participation of its likeness. Therefore, since God is the first effective cause of all things, it is manifest that the aspect of good and of desirableness belong to him. And hence Dionysius attributes good to God as to the first efficient cause, saying that God is called good as by whom all things subsist. Reply to Objection 1. To have mode, species, and order belongs to the essence of caused good. But good is in God as in its cause, and hence it belongs to Him to impose mode, species, and order on others. Wherefore these three things are in God as in their cause. Reply to Objection 2. All things, by desiring their own perfection, desire God himself, 
inasmuch as the perfection of all things are so many similitudes of the divine being, as appears from what is said above. And so of those things which desire God, some know him as he is in himself, as this is proper to the rational creature. Others know some participation of his goodness, and this belongs also to sensible knowledge. Others have a natural desire without knowledge, as being directed to their ends by a higher intelligence. Second article, whether God is the supreme good. Objection 1. It seems that God is not the supreme good, for the supreme good adds something to good, otherwise it would belong to every good. But everything which is an addition to anything else is a compound thing. Therefore the supreme good is a compound. But God is supremely simple, as was shown above. Therefore God is not the supreme good. Objection 2. Further, good is what all desire, as the philosopher says. Now what all desire is nothing but God, who is the end of all things. Therefore there is no other good but God. This appears also from what is said none is good but god alone but we use the word supreme in comparison with others as for example supreme heat is used in comparison with all other heats therefore god cannot be called the supreme good objection three further supreme implies comparison but things not in the same genus are not comparable as sweetness is not properly greater or less than a line Therefore, since God is not in the same genus as other good things, as appears above, it seems that God cannot be called the supreme good in relation to others. On the contrary, Augustine says that the trinity of the divine persons is the supreme good, discerned by purified minds. I answer that God is the supreme good simply and not only as existing in any genus or order of things. For good is attributed to God, as was said in the preceding article, inasmuch as all desired perfections flow from him as from the first cause. They do not, however, flow from him as from a univocal agent, as shown above, but as from an agent which does not agree with its effects either in species or genus. Now the likeness of an effect in the univocal cause is found uniformly, but in the equivocal cause it is found more excellently, as heat is in the sun more excellently than it is in fire. Therefore as good is in God as in the first but not the univocal cause of all things, it must be in him in a most excellent way, and therefore he is called the supreme good. Reply to Objection 1. The supreme good does not add to good any absolute thing, but only a relation. Now, a relation of God to creatures is not a reality in God, but in the creature. For it is in God in our idea only, as what is knowable is so called with relation to knowledge, not that it depends on knowledge, but because knowledge depends on it. Thus it is not necessary that there should be composition in the supreme good, but only that other things are deficient in comparison with it. Reply to objection 2. When we say that good is what all desire, it is not to be understood that every kind of good thing is desired by all, 
but that whatever is desired has the nature of good. And when it is said, none is good but God alone, this is to be understood of essential goodness, as will be explained in the next article. Reply to Objection 3. Things not of the same genus are in no way comparable to each other, if indeed they are in different genera. Now we say that God is not in the same genus with other good things, not that he is in any other genus, but that he is outside genus and is the principle of every genus. And thus he is compared to others by excess, and it is this kind of comparison the supreme good implies. Third article, whether to be essentially good belongs to God alone. Objection 1. It seems that to be essentially good does not belong to God alone, for as one is convertible with being, so is good, as we said above. But every being is one essentially, as appears from the philosopher. Therefore, every being is good essentially. Objection 2. Further, if good is what all things desire, since being itself is desired by all, then the being of each thing is its good. But everything is a being essentially. Therefore, every being is good essentially. Objection 3. Further, everything is good by its own goodness. Therefore, if there is anything which is not good essentially, it is necessary to say that its goodness is not its own essence. Therefore, its goodness, since it is not a being, must be good. And if it is good by some other goodness, the same question applies to that goodness also. Therefore, we must either proceed to infinity or come to some goodness which is not good by any other goodness. Therefore, the first supposition holds good. Therefore, everything is good essentially. On the contrary, Boethius says that all things but God are good by participation. Therefore, they are not good essentially. I answer that God alone is good essentially. For everything is called good according to its perfection. Now, perfection of a thing is threefold. First, according to the constitution of its own being. Secondly, in respect of any accidents being added as necessary for its perfect operation. Thirdly, perfection consists in the attaining to something else as the end. Thus, for instance, the first perfection of fire consists in its existence, which it has through its own substantial form. Its secondary perfection consists in heat, lightness, and dryness, and the like. Its third perfection is to rest in its own place. This triple perfection belongs to no creature by its own essence. It belongs to God only, in whom alone essence is existence, in whom there are no accidents, since whatever belongs to others accidentally belongs to him essentially, as to be powerful wise and the like, as appears from what is stated above. And he is not directed to anything else as to an end, but is himself the last end of all things. Hence it is manifest that God alone has every kind of perfection by his own essence. Therefore he himself alone is good, essentially. Reply to Objection 1. One does not include the idea of perfection, but only of division, which belongs to everything according to its own essence. Now the essences of simple things are undivided both actually and potentially. 
But the essences of compounds are undivided only actually, and therefore everything must be one essentially, but not good essentially, as was shown above. Reply to objection two: Although everything is good in that it has being, yet the essence of a creature is not very being, and therefore it does not follow that a creature is good essentially. Reply to objection three: The goodness of a creature is not its very essence, but something superadded. It is either its existence or some added perfection or the order to its end. Still, the goodness itself thus added is good, just as it is being. For, but for this reason it is called being, because by it something has being, not because it itself has being through something else. Hence, for this reason it is called good, because by it something is good, and not because it itself has some other goodness whereby it is good. Fourth article, whether all things are good by the divine goodness. Objection 1. It seems that all things are good by the divine goodness. For Augustine says, this and that are good. Take away this and that, and see good itself if thou canst. And so thou shalt see God, good not by any other good, but the good of every good. But everything is good by its own good, therefore everything is good by that very good which is God. Objection 2. Further, as Boethius says, all things are called good according as they are directed to God, and this is by reason of the divine goodness. Therefore, all things are good by the divine goodness. On the contrary, all things are good inasmuch as they have being. But they are not called beings through the divine being, but through their own being. Therefore, all things are not good by the divine goodness, but by their own goodness. I answer that, as regards relative things, we must admit extrinsic denomination as a thing is denominated placed from place and measured from measure. But as regards absolute things, opinions differ. Plato held the existence of separate ideas of all things and that individuals were denominated by them as participating in the separate ideas. For instance, that Socrates is called man according to the separate idea of man. Now just as he laid down separate ideas of man and horse, which he called absolute man and absolute horse, so likewise he laid down separate ideas of being and of one, and these he called absolute being and absolute oneness. And by participation of these, everything was called being or one. And what was thus absolute being and absolute one, he said, was the supreme good. And because good is convertible with being, as one is also, he called God the absolute good, from whom all things are called good by way of participation. Although this opinion appears to be unreasonable in affirming separate ideas of natural things as subsisting of themselves, as Aristotle argues in many ways, still it is absolutely true that there is first something which is essentially being and essentially good, which we call God, as appears from what is shown above, and Aristotle agrees with this. Hence, from the first being essentially such and good, everything can be called good and a being, inasmuch as it participates in it by way of a certain assimilation which is far removed and defective, as appears from the above. Everything is therefore called good 
from the divine goodness as from the first exemplary effective and final principle of all goodness. Nevertheless, everything is called good by reason of the similitude of the divine goodness belonging to it, which is formally its own goodness, whereby it is denominated good. And so of all things there is one goodness, yet many goodnesses. This is a sufficient reply to the objections. The end of question 6. Question 7 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, Initial Questions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Jim Ruddy. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, Initial Questions by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 7. The Infinity of God. After considering the divine perfection, we must consider the divine infinity and God's existence in things. For God is everywhere and in all things inasmuch as He is boundless and infinite. Concerning the first, there are four points of inquiry. Whether God is infinite whether anything besides him is infinite in essence, whether anything can be infinitude in magnitude, and whether an infinite multitude can exist. First article, whether God is infinite. Objection 1. It seems that God is not infinite, for everything infinite is imperfect, as the philosopher says, because it has parts and matter, as is said in the physics. But God is most perfect, therefore he is not infinite. Objection 2. Further, according to the philosopher, finite and infinite belong to quantity, but there is no quantity in God, for he is not a body, as was shown above. Therefore it does not belong to him to be infinite. Objection 3. Further, what is here in such a way as not to be elsewhere is finite according to place. Therefore that which is a thing in such a way as not to be another thing is finite according to substance. But God is this and not another, for he is not a stone or wood. Therefore God is not infinite in substance. On the contrary, Damascene says that God is infinite and eternal and boundless. I answer that all the ancient philosophers attribute infinitude to the first principle, as is said, and with reason. For they considered that things flow forth infinitely from the first principle. But because some erred concerning the nature of the first principle, as a consequence they erred also concerning its infinity, forasmuch as they asserted that matter was the first principle. Consequently they attributed to the first principle a material infinity to the effect that some infinite body was the first principle of things. We must consider, therefore, that a thing is called infinite because it is not finite. Now matter is in a way made finite by form and the form by matter. Matter indeed is made finite by form inasmuch as matter, before it receives its form, is in potentiality to many forms, but on receiving a form it is terminated by that one. Again, form is made finite by matter, inasmuch as form considered in itself is common to many, 
but when received in matter, the form is determined to this one particular thing. Now matter is perfected by the form by which it is made finite, therefore infinite as attributed to matter has the nature of something imperfect, for it is, as it were, formless matter. On the other hand, form is not made perfect by matter, but rather is contracted by matter, and hence the infinite regarded on the part of the form not determined by matter has the nature of something perfect. Now being is the most formal of all things, as appears from what is shown above. Since therefore the divine being is not a being received in anything, but he is his own subsistent being, as was shown above, it is clear that God himself is infinite and perfect. From this applies the reply to objection 1. Reply to objection 2. Quantity is terminated by its form, which can be seen in the fact that a figure, which consists in quantity terminated, is a kind of quantitative form. Hence the infinite of quantity is the infinite of matter. Such a kind of infinite cannot be attributed to God, as was said above in this article. Reply to Objection 3. The fact that the being of God is self-subsisting, not received in any other, and is thus called infinite, shows him to be distinguished from all other beings, and all others to be apart from him. Even so, were there such a thing as a self-subsisting whiteness, the very fact that it did not exist in anything else would make it distinct from every other whiteness existing in a subject. Second article, whether anything but God can be essentially infinite. Objection 1. It seems that something else besides God can be essentially infinite, for the power of anything is proportioned to its essence. Now if the essence of God is infinite, his power must also be infinite. Therefore he can produce an infinite effect, since the extent of a power is known by its effect. Objection 2. Further, whatever has infinite power has an infinite essence. Now the created intellect has an infinite power, for it apprehends the universal, which can extend itself to an infinitude of singular things. Therefore every created intellectual substance is infinite. Objection 3. Further, primary matter is something other than God, as was shown above, but primary matter is infinite, therefore something besides God can be infinite. On the contrary, the infinite cannot have a beginning, as said in the physics. But everything outside of God is from God as from its first principle, therefore besides God nothing can be infinite. I answer that things other than God can be relatively infinite, but not absolutely infinite. For with regard to infinite as applied to matter, it is manifest that everything actually existing possesses a form, and thus its matter is determined by form. But because matter considers as existing under some substantial form remains in potentiality to many accidental forms, which is absolutely finite, can be relatively infinite. As, for example, wood is finite according to its own form, but still it is relatively infinite, inasmuch as it is in potentiality to an infinite number of shapes. But if we speak of the infinite in reference to form, it is manifest that those things, the forms of which are in matter, are absolutely finite and in no way infinite. 
If, however, any created forms are not received into matter, but are self-subsisting, as some think is the case with angels, these will be relatively infinite, inasmuch as such kinds of forms are not terminated nor contracted by any matter. But because a created form thus subsisting has being, and yet is not its own being, it follows that its being is received and contracted to a determinate nature, hence it cannot be absolutely infinite. Reply to Objection 1. It is against the nature of a made thing for its essence to be its existence, because subsisting being is not a created being. Hence it is against the nature of a made thing to be absolutely infinite. Therefore, as God, although he has infinite power, cannot make a thing to be not made, for this would imply that two contradictories are true at the same time, so likewise he cannot make anything to be absolutely infinite. Replied to objection two, the fact that the power of the intellect extends itself in a way to infinite things is because the intellect is a form not in matter, but either wholly separated from matter, as is the angelic substance, or at least an intellectual power, which is not the act of any organ in the intellectual soul joined to a body. Reply to objection three, primary matter does not exist by itself in nature, since it is not actually being, but potentially only. Hence, it is something concreated rather than created. Nevertheless, primary matter, even as a potentiality, is not absolutely infinite, but relatively, because its potentiality extends only to natural forms. Third article, whether an actually infinite magnitude can exist. Objection 1. It seems that there can be something actually infinite in magnitude, for in mathematics there is no error, since there is no lie in things abstract, as the philosopher says, but mathematics uses the infinite in magnitude. Thus the geometrician in his demonstration says, let this line be infinite. Therefore it is not impossible for a thing to be infinite in magnitude. Objection 2. Further, what is not against the nature of anything can agree with it. Now to be infinite is not against the nature of magnitude, but rather both the finite and the infinite seem to be properties of quantity. Therefore it is not impossible for some magnitude to be infinite. Objection 3. Further, magnitude is infinitely divisible, for the continuous is defined that which is infinitely divisible, as is clear from physics. But contraries are concerned about one and the same thing, since therefore addition is opposed to division and increase opposed to diminution, it appears that magnitude can be increased to infinity. Therefore it is possible for magnitude to be infinite. Objection 4. Further, movement and time have quantity and continuity derived from the magnitude over which movement passes, as is said in the physics. But it is not against the nature of time and movement to be infinite, since every determinate indivisible in time and circular movement is both a beginning and an end. Therefore neither is it against the nature of magnitude to be infinite. On the contrary, every body has a surface. But every body which has a surface is finite, because surface is the term of a finite body. Therefore all bodies are finite. The same applies both to surface and to a line. Therefore nothing is infinite in magnitude. I answer that it is one thing to be infinite in essence 
and another to be infinite in magnitude. For granted that a body exists infinite in magnitude as fire or air, yet this could not be infinite in essence because its essence would be terminated in a species by its form and confined to individuality by matter. And so assuming from these premises that no creature is infinite in essence, it still remains to inquire whether any creature can be infinite in magnitude. We must therefore observe that a body which is a complete magnitude can be considered in two ways, mathematically in respect to its quantity only, and naturally as regards its matter and form. Now it is manifest that a natural body cannot be actually infinite, for every natural body has some determined substantial form. Since therefore the accidents follow upon the substantial form, it is necessary that determinate accidents should follow upon a determinate form. And among these accidents is quantity, so every natural body has a greater or smaller determinate quantity. Hence it is impossible for a natural body to be infinite. The same appears from movement, because every natural body has some natural movement, whereas an infinite body could not have any natural movement, neither direct, because nothing moves naturally by a direct movement unless it is out of its place. And this could not happen to an infinite body, for it would occupy every place, and thus every place would be indifferently its own place. Neither could it move circularly, forasmuch as circular motion requires that one part of the body is necessarily transferred to a place occupied by another part, and this could not happen as regards an infinite circular body, for if two lines be drawn from the center, the farther they extend from the center, the farther they are from each other. Therefore, if a body were infinite, the lines would be infinitely distant from each other, and thus one could never occupy the place belonging to any other. The same applies to a mathematical body. For if we imagine a mathematical body actually existing, we must imagine it under some form, because nothing is actual except by its form. Hence, since the form of quantity as such is figure, such a body must have some figure, and so would be finite, for figure is confined by a term or boundary. Reply to Objection 1. A geometrician does not need to assume a line actually infinite, but takes some actually finite line from which he subtracts whatever he finds necessary, which line he calls infinite. Reply to Objection 2. Although the infinite is not against the nature of magnitude in general, still it is against the nature of any species of it. Thus, for instance, it is against the nature of a bicubal, or tricubal magnitude, whether circular or triangular, and so on. Now what is not possible in any species cannot exist in the genus, hence there cannot be any infinite magnitude, since no species of magnitude is infinite. Reply to Objection 3. The infinite in quantity, as was shown above, belongs to matter. Now by division of the whole we approach to matter, for as much as parts have the aspect of matter, but by addition we approach to the whole which has the aspect of a form. Therefore the infinite is not in the addition of magnitude, but only in division. Reply to Objection 4. Movement and time are whole, not actually, but successively. Hence they have 
potentiality mixed with actuality. But magnitude is an actual whole. Therefore the infinite in quantity refers to matter and does not agree with the totality of magnitude. Yet it agrees with the totality of time and movement, for it is proper to matter to be in potentiality. Fourth article, whether an infinite multitude can exist. Objection 1. It seems that an actually infinite multitude is possible, for it is not impossible for a potentiality to be made actual. But number can be multiplied to infinity, therefore it is possible for an infinite multitude actually to exist. Objection 2. Further, it is possible for any individual of any species to be made actual, but the species of figures are infinite. Therefore, an infinite number of actual figures is possible. Objection 3. Further, things not opposed to each other do not obstruct each other. But supposing a multitude of things to exist, there can still be many others not opposed to them. Therefore, it is not impossible for others also to coexist with them, and so on to infinitude. Therefore, an actual infinite number of things is possible. On the contrary, it is written, Thou hast ordered all things in measure and number and weight. I answer that a twofold opinion exists on this subject. Some, as Avicenna and Algazel, said that it was impossible for an actually infinite multitude to exist absolutely, but that an accidentally infinite multitude was not impossible. A multitude is said to be infinite absolutely when an infinite multitude is necessary that something may exist. Now this is impossible because it would entail something dependent on an infinity for its existence, and in its generation could never come to be because it is impossible to pass through an infinite medium. A multitude is said to be accidentally infinite when its existence as such is not necessary but accidental. This can be shown, for example, in the work of a carpenter requiring a certain absolute multitude, namely art in the soul, the movement of the hand, and a hammer. And supposing that such things were infinitely multiplied, the carpentering wood would never be finished, forasmuch as it would depend on an infinite number of causes. But the multitude of hammers, inasmuch as one may be broken and another used, is an accidental multitude. For it happens by accident that many hammers are used, and it matters little whether one or two or many are used, or an infinite number, if the work is carried on for an infinite time. In this way they said that there can be an accidentally infinite multitude. This, however, is impossible, since every kind of multitude must belong to a species of multitude. Now the species of multitude are to be reckoned by the species of numbers. But no species of number is infinite, for every number is multitude measured by one. Hence it is impossible for there to be an actually infinite multitude, either absolute or accidental. Likewise, multitude in nature is created and everything created is comprehended under some clear intention of the Creator, for no agent acts aimlessly. Hence everything created must be comprehended in a certain number. Therefore it is impossible for an actually infinite multitude to exist even accidentally. But a potentially infinite multitude is possible, 
because the increase of multitude follows upon the division of magnitude, since the more a thing is divided, the greater number of things result. Hence, as the infinite is to be found potentially in the division of the continuous, because we thus approach matter, as was shown in the preceding article, by the same rule, the infinite can be also found potentially in the addition of multitude. Reply to Objection 1. Every potentiality is made actual according to its mode of being. For instance, a day is reduced to act successively and not all at once. Likewise, the infinite and multitude is reduced to act successively and not all at once, because every multitude can be succeeded by another multitude to infinity. Reply to Objection 2. Species of figures are infinite by infinitude of number. Now there are various species of figures, such as trilateral, quadrilateral, and so on. And as an infinitely numerable multitude is not all at once reduced to act, so neither is the multitude of figures. Reply to Objection 3. Although the supposition of some things does not preclude the supposition of others, still the supposition of an infinite number is opposed to any single species of multitude, Hence, it is not possible for an actually infinite multitude to exist. The end of question 7. Question 8 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, Initial Questions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Jim Ruddy. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, Initial Questions by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 8. The Existence of God in Things. Since it evidently belongs to the infinite to be present everywhere and in all things, we now consider whether this belongs to God, and concerning this there arise four points of inquiry, whether God is in all things, whether God is everywhere, whether God is everywhere by essence, power, and presence, and whether to be everywhere belongs to God alone. First article, whether God is in all things. Objection 1. It seems that God is not in all things, for what is above all things is not in all things. But God is above all. According to the psalm, the Lord is high above all nations. Therefore, God is not in all things. Objection 2. Further, what is in anything is thereby contained. Now, God is not contained by things, but rather does He contain them. Therefore, God is not in things, but things are rather in Him. Hence, Augustine says, that in him things are, rather than he is in any place. Objection 3. Further, the more powerful an agent is, the more extended is its action. But God is the most powerful of all agents. Therefore his action can extend to things which are far removed from him. Nor is it necessary that he should be in all things. Objection 4. Further, the demons are beings, but God is not in the demons. For there is no fellowship between light and darkness. Therefore God is not in all things. On the contrary, a thing is wherever it operates, but God operates in all things. According to Isaiah, Lord, thou hast wrought all our works in us. 
Therefore God is in all things. I answer that God is in all things, not indeed as part of their essence, nor as an accident, but as an agent is present to that upon which it works. For an agent must be joined to that wherein it acts immediately, and touch it by its power. Hence it is proved in physics that the thing moved and the mover must be joined together. Now since God is very being by his own essence, created being must be his proper effect, as to ignite is the proper effect of fire. Now God causes this effect in things not only when they first begin to be, but as long as they are preserved in being, as light is caused in the air by the sun as long as the air remains illuminated. Therefore, as long as a thing has being, God must be present to it, according to its mode of being. But being is innermost in each thing, and most fundamentally inherent in all things, since it is formal in respect of everything found in a thing, as was shown above. Hence it must be that God is in all things and innermostly. Reply to objection 1. God is above all things by the excellence of his power or nature. Nevertheless, he is in all things as a cause of the being of all things, as was shown above in this article. Reply to objection 2. Although corporeal things are said to be in another as in that which contains them, nevertheless, spiritual things contain those things in which they are, as the soul contains the body. Hence also God is in things containing them. Nevertheless, by a certain similitude to corporeal things, it is said that all things are in God, inasmuch as they are contained by Him. Reply to Objection 3. No action of an agent, however powerful it may be, acts at a distance except through a medium. But it belongs to the great power of God that He acts immediately in all things. Hence nothing is distant from Him as if it could be without God in itself. But things are said to be distant from God by the unlikeness to Him in nature or grace, as also He is above all by the excellence of His own nature. Reply to Objection 4. In the demons there is their nature which is from God, and also the deformity of sin which is not from Him. Therefore it is not to be absolutely conceded that God is in the demons, except with the addition, inasmuch as they are beings. But in things not deformed in their nature, we must say absolutely that God is. Second article, whether God is everywhere. Objection 1. It seems that God is not everywhere, for to be everywhere means to be in every place. But to be in every place does not belong to God, to whom it does not belong to be in place at all. For incorporeal things, as Boethius says, are not in a place. Therefore God is not everywhere. Objection 2. Further, the relation of time to succession is the same as the relation of place to permanence. But one indivisible part of action or movement cannot exist in different times. Therefore, neither can one indivisible part in the genus of permanent things be in every place. Now, the divine being is not successive, but permanent. Therefore, God is not in many places, and thus he is not everywhere. Objection 3. Further, what is holy in any one place is not in part elsewhere. 
But if God is in any one place, he is all there, for he has no parts. No part of him then is elsewhere, and therefore God is not everywhere. On the contrary, it is written, I fill heaven and earth. I answer that, since place is a thing, to be in place can be understood in a twofold sense, either by way of other things, that is, as one thing is said to be in another no matter how, and thus the accidents of a place are in place, or by a way proper to place, and thus things placed are in a place. Now in both these senses, in some way, God is in every place, and this is to be everywhere. First, as he is in all things, giving them being, power, and operation, so he is in every place as giving it existence and locative power. Again, things placed are in place, inasmuch as they fill place, and God fills every place. Not indeed like a body, for a body is said to fill place inasmuch as it excludes the co-presence of another body, whereas by God being in a place, others are not thereby excluded from it. Indeed, by the very fact that he gives being to the things that fill every place, he himself fills every place. Reply to Objection 1. Incorporeal things are in place not by contact of dimensive quantity, as bodies are, but by contact of power. Reply to Objection 2. The indivisible is twofold. One is the term of the continuous as a point in permanent things and as a moment in succession. And this kind of the indivisible in permanent things, for as much as it has a determinate site, cannot be in many parts of place or in many places. Likewise, the indivisible of action or movement, for as much as it has a determinate order in movement or action, cannot be in many parts of time. Another kind of the indivisible is outside of the whole genus of the continuous, and in this way incorporeal substances like God, angel, and soul are called indivisible. Such a kind of indivisible does not belong to the continuous as a part of it, but as touching it by its power. Hence, according as its power can extend itself to one or to many, to a small thing or to a great one, in this way it is in one place or in many places, and in a small or large place. Reply to Objection 3. A whole is so called with reference to its parts. Now part is twofold, namely a part of the essence, as the form and the matter are called parts of the composite, while genus and difference are called parts of a species. There is also part of quantity into which any quantity is divided. What therefore is whole in any place by totality of quantity cannot be outside of that place because the quantity of anything placed is commensurate to the quantity of the place and hence there is no totality of quantity without totality of place. But totality of essence is not commensurate to the totality of place. Hence, it is not necessary for that which is whole by totality of essence in a thing not to be at all outside of it. This appears also in accidental forms which have accidental quantity. As an example, whiteness is whole in each part of the surface if we speak of its totality of essence because according to the perfect idea of its species, it is found to exist in every part of the surface. But if its totality be considered according to quantity, which it has accidentally, 
then it is not whole in every part of the surface. On the other hand, incorporeal substances have no totality either of themselves or accidentally, except in reference to the perfect idea of their essence. Hence, as the soul is whole in every part of the body, so is God whole in all things and in each one. Third article, whether God is everywhere by essence, presence, and power. Objection 1. It seems that the mode of God's existence in all things is not properly described by way of essence, presence, and power. For what is by essence in anything is in it essentially. But God is not essentially in things, for he does not belong to the essence of anything. Therefore it ought not to be said that God is in things by essence, presence, and power. Objection 2. Further, to be present in anything means not to be absent from it, but this is the meaning of God being in things by his essence, that he is not absent from anything. Therefore the presence of God in all things by essence and presence mean the same thing. Therefore it is superfluous to say that God is present in things by his essence, presence, and power. Objection 3. Further, as God by his power is the principle of all things, so he is the same likewise by his knowledge and will. But it is not said that he is in things by knowledge and will, therefore ne neither is he present by his power. Objection 4. Further, as grace is a perfection added to the substance of a thing, so many other perfections are likewise added. Therefore, if God is said to be in certain persons in a special way by grace, it seems that according to every perfection there ought to be a special mode of God's existence in things. On the contrary, a gloss on the canticle of canticles says that God, by a common mode, is in all things by his presence, power, and substance. Still, he is said to be present more familiarly in some by grace. I answer that God is said to be in a thing in two ways, and one way after the manner of an efficient cause, and thus he is in all things created by him. In another way he is in things as the object of operation is in the operator, and this is proper to the operations of the soul, according as the thing known is in the one who knows, and the thing desired is in the one desiring. In this second way, God is especially in the rational creature which knows and loves him actually or habitually. And because the rational creature possesses this prerogative by grace, as will be shown later, he is said to be thus in the saints by grace. But how he is in other things created by him may be considered from human affairs. A king, for example, is said to be in the whole kingdom by his power, although he is not everywhere present. Again, a thing is said to be by its presence in other things which are subject to its inspection, as things in a house are said to be present to anyone who nevertheless may not be in substance in every part of the house. Lastly, a thing is said to be by way of substance or essence in that place in which its substance may be. Now there were some, the Manichees, who said that spiritual and incorporeal things were subject to the divine power, but that visible and corporeal things were subject to the power of a contrary principle. Therefore against these 
it is necessary to say that God is in all things by his power. But others, though they believed that all things were subject to the divine power, still did not allow that divine providence extended to these inferior bodies. And in the person of these, it is said, He walketh about the poles of the heavens, and he doth not consider our things. Against these it is necessary to say that God is in all things by his presence. Further, others said that although all things are subject to God's providence, still all things are not immediately created by God, but that he immediately created the first creatures, and these created the others. Against these it is necessary to say that he is in all things by his essence. Therefore God is in all things by his power, inasmuch as all things are subject to his power. He is by his presence in all things, as all things are bare and open to his eyes. He is in all things by his essence, inasmuch as he is present to all as the cause of their being. Reply to Objection 1. God is said to be in all things by essence, not indeed by the essence of the things themselves, as if he were of their essence, but by his own essence, because his substance is present to all things as the cause of their being. Reply to objection 2. A thing can be said to be present to another when in its sight, though the thing may be distant in substance, as was shown in this article, and therefore two modes of presence are necessary, namely by essence and by presence. Reply to objection 3. Knowledge and will require that the thing known should be in the one who knows, and the thing willed in the one who wills. Hence, by knowledge and will, things are more truly in God than God in things. But power is the principle of acting on another. Hence, by power, the agent is related and applied to an external thing. Thus, by power, an agent may be said to be present to another. Reply to Objection 4. No other perfection except grace added to substance renders God present in anything as the object known and loved. Therefore only grace constitutes a special mode of God's existence in things. There is, however, another special mode of God's existence in man by union, which will be treated of in its own place. Fourth article, whether to be everywhere belongs to God alone. Objection 1. It seems that to be everywhere does not belong to God alone. For the universal, according to the philosopher, is everywhere and always. Primary matter also, since it is in all bodies, is everywhere. But neither of these is God, as appears from what is said above. Therefore to be everywhere does not belong to God alone. Objection 2. Further, number is in things numbered, but the whole universe is constituted in number as appears from the book of wisdom. Therefore, there is in some number which is in the whole universe and is thus everywhere. Objection 3. Further, the universe is a kind of whole perfect body, but the whole universe is everywhere because there is no place outside it, Therefore, to be everywhere does not belong to God alone. Objection 4. Further, if any body were infinite, no place would exist outside of it, and so it would be everywhere. 
Therefore, to be everywhere does not appear to belong to God alone. Objection 5. Further, the soul, as Augustine says, is whole in the whole body, and whole in every one of its parts. Therefore, if there was only one animal in the world, its soul would be everywhere, and thus to be everywhere does not belong to God alone. Objection 6. Further, as Augustine says, the soul feels where it sees, and lives where it feels, and is where it lives. But the soul sees, as it were, everywhere, for in a succession of glances it comprehends the entire space of the heavens in its sight. Therefore the soul is everywhere. On the contrary, Ambrose says, who dares to call the Holy Ghost a creature who in all things and everywhere and always is, which assuredly belongs to the divinity alone? I answer that to be everywhere primarily and absolutely is proper to God. Now to be everywhere primarily is said of that which in its whole self is everywhere. For if a thing were everywhere according to its parts in different places, it would not be primarily everywhere, for as much as what belongs to anything according to part does not belong to it primarily. Thus, if a man has white teeth, whiteness belongs primarily not to the man, but to his teeth. But a thing is everywhere absolutely when it does not belong to it to be everywhere accidentally, that is, merely on some supposition, as a grain of millet would be everywhere, supposing that no other body existed. It belongs therefore to a thing to be everywhere absolutely when, on any supposition, it must be everywhere, and this properly belongs to God alone. For whatever number of places be supposed, even if an infinite number be supposed, besides what already exists, it would be necessary that God should be in all of them, for nothing can exist except by Him. Therefore, to be everywhere primarily and absolutely belongs to God and is proper to Him, because whatever number of places be supposed to exist, God must be in all of them, not as to a part of Him, but as to His very self. Reply to Objection 1. The universal and also primary matter are indeed everywhere, but not according to the same mode of existence. Reply to Objection 2. Number, since it is an accident, does not of itself exist in place, but accidentally. Neither is the whole, but only part of it in each of the things numbered. Hence, it does not follow that it is primarily and absolutely everywhere. Reply to Objection 3. The whole body of the universe is everywhere, but not primarily, for as much as it is not wholly in each place, but according to its parts. Nor again is it everywhere absolutely, because supposing that other places existed beside itself, it would not be in them. Reply to Objection 4. If an infinite body existed, it would be everywhere, but according to its parts. Reply to Objection 5. Were there one animal only, its soul would be everywhere, primarily indeed, but only accidentally. Reply to Objection 6. When it is said that the soul sees anywhere, this can be taken in two senses. In one sense, the adverb anywhere determines the act of seeing on the part of the object. And in this sense, it is true that while it sees the heavens, it sees in the heavens. And in the same way, it feels in the heavens. But it does not follow that it lives or exists in the heavens, because to live and to exist do not import an act passing to an exterior object. In another sense, 
It can be understood according as the adverb determines the act of the seer as proceeding from the seer. Thus it is true that where the soul feels and sees, there it is, and there it lives, according to this mode of speaking. And thus it does not follow that it is everywhere. The end of question 8. Question 9 of Summa Theologica Pars Prima Initial Questions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Jim Ruddy. Summa Theologica Pars Prima Initial Questions by Thomas Aquinas Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province Question 9. The Immutability of God We next consider God's immutability and His eternity following on His immutability. On the immutability of God there are two points of inquiry, whether God is altogether immutable and whether to be immutable belongs to God alone. First article, whether God is altogether immutable. Objection 1. It seems that God is not altogether immutable, for whatever moves itself is in some way mutable. But as Augustine says, the Creator Spirit moves Himself neither by time nor by place. Therefore God is in some way mutable. Objection 2. Further, it is said of wisdom that it is more mobile than all things active. But God is wisdom itself, therefore God is movable. Objection 3. Further, to approach and to recede signify movement, but these are said of God in Scripture, draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you, therefore God is mutable. On the contrary, it is written, I am the Lord and I change not. I answer that from what proceeds it is shown that God is altogether immutable. First, because it was shown above that there is some first being whom we call God, and that this first being must be pure act without the admixture of any potentiality for the reason that absolutely potentiality is posterior to act now everything which is in any way changed is in some way in potentiality hence it is evident that it is impossible for god to be in any way changeable secondly because everything which is moved remains as it was in part and passes away in part as what is moved from whiteness to blackness remains the same as to substance Thus, in everything which is moved, there is some kind of composition to be found. But it has been shown above that in God there is no composition, for He is altogether simple. Hence it is manifest that God cannot be moved. Thirdly, because everything which is moved acquires something by its movement and attains to what it had not attained previously. But since God is infinite, comprehending in Himself all the plenitude of perfection of all being, he cannot acquire anything new, nor extend himself to anything whereto he was not extended previously. Hence, movement in no way belongs to him. So some of the ancients, constrained as it were by the truth, decided that the first principle was immovable. Reply to Objection 1. Augustine there speaks in a similar way to Plato, who said that the first mover moves himself, calling 
every operation of movement even as the acts of understanding and willing and loving are called movements therefore because god understands and loves himself in that respect they said that god moves himself not however as movement and change belong to a thing existing in potentiality as we now speak of change and movement reply to objection to wisdom is called mobile by way of similitude according as it diffuses its likeness even to the outermost of things for nothing can exist which does not proceed from the divine wisdom by way of some kind of imitation as from the first effective and formal principle as also works of art proceed from the wisdom of the artist and so in the same way inasmuch as the similitude of the divine wisdom proceeds in degrees from the highest things which participate more fully of its likeness to the lowest things which participate of it in a lesser degree there is said to be a kind of procession and movement of the divine wisdom to things as when we say that the sun proceeds to the earth inasmuch as the ray of light touches the earth in this way dionysius expounds the matter that every procession of the divine manifestation comes to us from the movement of the father of light reply to objection three these things are said of god in scripture metaphorically for as the sun is said to enter a house or to go out according as its rays reach the house so god is said to approach to us or to recede from us when we receive the influx of his goodness or decline from him second article whether to be immutable belongs to god alone first objection it seems that to be immutable does not belong to god alone for the philosopher says that matter is in everything which is moved but according to some certain created substances as angels and souls have no matter therefore to be immutable does not belong to god alone objection to further everything in motion moves to some end what therefore has already attained its ultimate end is not in motion but some creatures have already attained to their ultimate end as all the blessed in heaven therefore some creatures are immovable objection three further everything which is mutable is variable but forms are invariable for it is said that form is essence consisting of the simple and invariable therefore it does not belong to god alone to be immutable on the contrary augustine says god alone is immutable and whatever things he has made being from nothing are mutable i answer that god alone is altogether immutable whereas every creature is in some way mutable be it known therefore that a mutable thing can be called so in two ways by a power in itself and by a power possessed by another for all creatures before they existed were possible not by any created power since no creature is eternal but by the divine power alone inasmuch as god could produce them into existence thus as the production of a thing into existence depends on the will of god so likewise it depends on his will that things should be preserved for he does not preserve them otherwise than by ever giving them existence hence if he took away his actions from them all things would be reduced to nothing as appears from augustine therefore as it was in the creator's power to produce them before they existed in themselves so likewise it is in the creator's power when they exist in themselves to bring them to nothing 
In this way, therefore, by the power of another, namely of God, they are mutable inasmuch as they are producible from nothing by Him and are by Him reducible from existence to non-existence. If, however, a thing is called mutable by a power in itself, thus also in some manner every creature is mutable, for every creature has a twofold power, active and passive. And I call that power passive, which enables anything to attain its perfection either in being or in attaining to its end. Now if the mutability of a thing be considered according to its power for being, in that way all creatures are not mutable, but those only in which what is potential in them is consistent with non-being. Hence in the inferior bodies there is mutability both as regards substantial being, inasmuch as their matter can exist with privation of their substantial form, and also as regards their accidental being, supposing the subject to coexist with privation of accident. As, for example, the subject man can exist with not-whiteness, and can therefore be changed from white to not-white. But supposing the accident to be such as to follow on the essential principles of the subject, then the privation of such an accident cannot coexist with the subject. Hence the subject cannot be changed as regards that kind of accident, as for example snow cannot be made black. Now in the celestial bodies matter is not consistent with privation of form, because the form perfects the whole potentiality of the matter. Therefore these bodies are not mutable as to substantial being, but only as to locality, because the subject is consistent with privation of this or that place. On the other hand, incorporeal substances, being subsistent forms, which although with respect to their own existence are as potentiality to act, are not consistent with the privation of this act, for as much as existence is consequent upon form, and nothing corrupts except it lose its form. Hence in the form itself there is no power to non-existence. And so these kinds of substances are immutable and invariable as regards their existence. Wherefore Dionysius says that intellectual created substances are pure from generation and from every variation, as also are incorporeal and immaterial substances. Still, there remains in them a twofold mutability, one as regards their potentiality to their end, and in that way there is in them a mutability according to choice from good to evil, as Damascene says, the other as regards place, inasmuch as by their finite power they attain to certain fresh places which cannot be said of God, who by his infinity fills all places, as was shown above. Thus in every creature there is a potentiality to change, either as regards substantial being, as in the case of things corruptible, or as regards locality only, as in the case of the celestial bodies, or as regards the order to their end, and the application of their powers to diverse objects, as is the case with the angels. And universally, all creatures generally are mutable by the power of the Creator, in whose power is their existence and non-existence. And since God is in none of these ways mutable, it belongs to Him alone to be altogether immutable. Reply to Objection 1. This objection proceeds from mutability as regards substantial or accidental being for philosophers treated of such movement. Reply to objection to the good angels, besides their natural endowment of immutability of being, have also immutability of election by divine power. Nevertheless, there remains in them 
mutability as regards place. Reply to Objection 3. Forms are called invariable, forasmuch as they cannot be subjects of variation. They are subjects to variation because by them their subject is variable. Hence it is clear that they vary in so far as they are, for they are not called beings as though they were the subject of being, but because through them something has being. The end of question 9. Question 10 of Summa Theologica Pars Prima Initial Questions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Jim Ruddy. Summa Theologica Pars Prima Initial Questions by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 10. The Eternity of God. We must now consider the eternity of God, concerning which arise six points of inquiry. What is eternity? Whether God is eternal? Whether to be eternal belongs to God alone? Whether eternity differs from time? The difference of eternity and of time? and whether there is only one eternity, as there is one time and one eternity. First article, whether this is a good definition of eternity, the simultaneously whole and perfect possession of interminable life. Objection 1. It seems that the definition of eternity given by Boethius is not a good one. Eternity is the simultaneously whole and perfect possession of interminable life. For the word interminable is a negative one, but negation only belongs to what is defective, and this does not belong to eternity. Therefore, in the definition of eternity, the word interminable ought not to be found. Objection 2. Further, eternity signifies a kind of duration, but duration regards existence rather than life. Therefore, the word life ought not to come into the definition of eternity, but rather the word existence. Objection 3. Further, a whole is what has parts, but this is alien to eternity, which is simple. Therefore, it is improperly said to be whole. Objection 4. Many days cannot occur together, nor can many times exist all at once, but in eternity days and times are in the plural, for it is said, His going forth is from the beginning from the days of eternity. And also it is said, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden from eternity. Therefore, eternity is not omnisimultaneous. Objection 5. Further, the whole and the perfect are the same thing. Supposing, therefore, that it is whole, it is superfluously described as perfect. And objection 6. Further, duration does not imply possession, but eternity is a kind of duration. Therefore, eternity is not possession. I answer that, as we attain to the knowledge of simple things by way of compound things, so we must reach to the knowledge of eternity by means of time, which is nothing but the numbering of movement by before and after. For since succession occurs in every movement and one part comes after another, 
the fact that we reckon before and after in movement makes us apprehend time which is nothing else but the measure of before and after in movement now in a thing bereft of movement which is always the same there is no before or after as therefore the idea of time consists in the numbering of before and after in movement so likewise in the apprehension of the uniformity of what is outside of movement consists the idea of eternity further those things are said to be measured by time which have a beginning and an end in time because in everything which is moved there is a beginning and there is an end but as whatever is wholly immutable can have no succession so it has no beginning and no end thus eternity is known from two sources first because what is eternal is interminable that is has no beginning nor end that is no term either way secondly because eternity has no succession being simultaneously whole reply to objection one simple things are usually defined by way of negation as a point is that which has no parts yet this is not to be taken as if the negation belonged to their existence but because our intellect which first apprehends compound things cannot attain to the knowledge of simple things except by removing the opposite reply to objection two what is truly eternal is not only being but also living and life extends to operation which is not true of being now the protraction of duration seems to belong to operation rather than to being hence time is the numbering of movement reply to objection three eternity is called whole not because it has parts but because it is wanting in nothing reply to objection four as god although incorporeal is named in scripture metaphorically by corporeal names so eternity though simultaneously whole is called by names implying time and succession reply to objection five two things are to be considered in time time itself which is successive and the now of time which is imperfect hence the expression simultaneously whole is used to remove the idea of time and the word perfect is used to exclude the now of time reply to objection six whatever is possessed is held firmly and quietly therefore to designate the immutability and permanence of eternity we use the word possession second article whether god is eternal objection one it seems that god is not eternal for nothing made can be predicated of god for boethius says that the now that flows away makes time the now that stands still makes eternity and augustine says that god is the author of eternity therefore god is not eternal objection two further what is before eternity and after eternity is not measured by eternity but as aristotle says god is before eternity and he is after eternity for it is written that the lord shall reign for eternity and beyond therefore to be eternal does not belong to god objection three further eternity is a kind of measure but to be measured belongs not to god therefore it does not belong to him to be eternal and objection four further in eternity there is no present past or future since it is simultaneously whole 
as was said in the preceding article. But words denoting present, past, and future time are applied to God in Scripture. Therefore, God is not eternal. On the contrary, Athanasius says in his creed, The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, and the Holy Ghost is eternal. I answer that. The idea of eternity follows immutability, as the idea of time follows movement, as appears from the preceding article. Hence, as God is supremely immutable, it supremely belongs to him to be eternal. Nor is he eternal only, but he is his own eternity, whereas no other being is its own duration, as no other is its own being. Now God is his own uniform being, and hence as he is his own essence, so he is his own eternity. Reply to objection 1. The now that stands still is said to make eternity according to our apprehension, as the apprehension of time is caused in us by the fact that we apprehend the flow of the now, so the apprehension of eternity is caused in us by our apprehending the now standing still. When Augustine says that God is the author of eternity, this is to be understood of participated eternity, for God communicates his eternity to some in the same way as he communicates his immutability. Reply to Objection 2. From this appears the answer to the second objection, for God is said to be before eternity, according as it is shared by immaterial substances. Hence also in the same book it is said that intelligence is equal to eternity. In the words of Exodus, the Lord shall reign for eternity and beyond. Eternity stands for age, as another rendering has it. Thus it is said that the Lord will reign beyond eternity, inasmuch as he endures beyond every age, that is, beyond every kind of duration. For age is nothing more than the period of each thing, as is said in the book De Celo. Or to reign beyond eternity can be taken to mean that if any other thing were conceived to exist forever, as the movement of the heavens according to some philosophers, then God would still reign beyond inasmuch as his reign is simultaneously whole. Reply to Objection 3. Eternity is nothing else but God himself. Hence God is not called eternal, as if he were in any way measured, but the idea of measurement is there taken according to the apprehension of our mind alone. Reply to Objection 4. Words denoting different times are applied to God because his eternity includes all times, not as if he himself were altered through present, past, and future. Third article, whether to be eternal belongs to God alone. Objection 1. It seems that it does not belong to God alone to be eternal, for it is written that those who instruct many to justice shall be as stars unto perpetual eternities. Now, if God alone were eternal, there could not be many eternities. Therefore, God alone is not the only eternal. Objection 2. Further, it is written, Depart, ye cursed, into eternal fire. Therefore, God is not the only eternal. 
Objection 3. Further, every necessary thing is eternal, but there are many necessary things, as, for instance, all principles of demonstration and all demonstrative propositions. Therefore, God is not the only eternal. On the contrary, Jerome says that God is the only one who has no beginning. Now, whatever has a beginning is not eternal. Therefore, God is the only one eternal. I answer that eternity, truly and properly so-called, is in God alone, because eternity follows on immutability, as appears from the first article. Accordingly, however, as some receive immutability from God in the way of never ceasing to exist, in that sense it is said of the earth, it standeth forever. Again, some things are called eternal in Scripture because of the length of their duration, although they are in nature corruptible. Thus, the hills are called eternal, and we read of the fruits of the eternal hills. Some, again, share more fully than others in the nature of eternity, inasmuch as they possess unchangeableness either in being or further still in operation, like the angels and the blessed who enjoy the word, because as regards that vision of the word, no changing thoughts exist in the saints, as Augustine says. Hence those who see God are said to have eternal life. According to that text, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God. Reply to Objection 1. There are said to be many eternities, accordingly as many share in eternity by the contemplation of God. Reply to Objection 2. The fire of hell is called eternal only because it never ends. Still, there is change in the pains of the lost, according to the words, to extreme heat they will pass from snowy waters. Hence, in hell, true eternity does not exist, but rather time, according to the text of the psalm, their time will be forever. Reply to Objection 3. Necessary means a certain mode of truth. And truth, according to the philosopher, is in the mind. Therefore, in this sense, the true and necessary are eternal because they are in the eternal mind, which is the divine intellect alone. Hence, it does not follow that anything besides God is eternal. Fourth article, whether eternity differs from time. Objection 1. It seems that eternity does not differ from time, for two measures of duration cannot exist together unless one is part of the other. For instance, two days or two hours cannot be together. Nevertheless, we may say that a day or an hour are together, considering hour as part of a day. But eternity and time occur together, each of which imports a certain measure of duration. Since, therefore, eternity is not a part of time, forasmuch as eternity exceeds time and includes it, it seems that time is part of eternity and is not a different thing from eternity. Objection 2. Further, according to the philosopher, the now of time remains the same in the whole of time. But the nature of eternity seems to be that it is the same indivisible thing in the whole space of time. Therefore, eternity is the now of time, but the now of time is not substantially different from time. Therefore, eternity is not substantially different from time. Objection 3. Further, as the measure of the first movement is the measure of every movement, as said in the physics, it thus appears that the measure of the first being is that of every being. 
But eternity is the measure of the first being, that is, of the divine being. Therefore, eternity is the measure of every being. But the being of things corruptible is measured by time. Time, therefore, is either eternity or is a part of eternity. On the contrary, eternity is simultaneously whole. But time has a before and an after. Therefore, time and eternity are not the same thing. I answer that. It is manifest that time and eternity are not the same. Some have founded this difference on the fact that eternity has neither beginning nor an end, whereas time has a beginning and an end. This, however, makes a merely accidental and not an absolute difference, because granted that time always was and always will be, according to the idea of those who think the movement of the heavens goes on forever, there would yet remain a difference between eternity and time, as Boethius says, arising from the fact that eternity is simultaneously whole, which cannot be applied to time. For eternity is the measure of a permanent being, while time is a measure of movement. Supposing, however, that the aforesaid difference be considered on the part of the things measured, and not as regards the measures, then there is some reason for it, inasmuch as that alone is measured by time which has a beginning and end in time. Hence, if the movement of the heavens lasted always, time would not be of its measure as regards the whole of its duration, since the infinite is not measurable. But it would be the measure of that part of its revolution which has beginning and end in time. Another reason for the same can be taken from these measures in themselves if we consider the end and the beginning as potentialities. Because granted also that time always goes on, yet it is possible to note in time both the beginning and the end by considering its parts. Thus we speak of the beginning and the end of a day or of a year which cannot be applied to eternity. Still, these differences follow upon the essential and primary differences that eternity is simultaneously whole, but that time is not so. Reply to Objection 1. Such a reason would be valid, 1, if time and eternity were the same kind of measure, but this is seen not to be the case when we consider those things of which the respective measures are time and eternity. Reply to Objection 2. The now of time is the same as regards its subject in the whole course of time, but it differs in aspect. 